Section 18 of The Life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. The Life of Abraham Lincoln by Ward Hill Lehman. Chapter 12, Part 2. Some time after my colleague, Mr. Richardson, introduced the resolutions I have mentioned, I introduced a preamble, resolution, and interrogatories, intended to draw the President out, if possible, on this hitherto untrodden ground. To show their relevancy, I propose to state my understanding of the true rule for ascertaining the boundary between Texas and Mexico. It is that, wherever Texas was exercising jurisdiction was hers, and wherever Mexico was exercising jurisdiction was hers, and that whatever separated the actual exercise of jurisdiction of the one from that of the other was the true boundary between them. If, as is probably true, Texas was exercising jurisdiction along the western bank of the Nueces, and Mexico was exercising it along the eastern bank of the Rio Grande, then neither river was the boundary, but the uninhabited country between the two was. The extent of our territory in that region depended not on any treaty-fixed boundary, for no treaty had attempted it, but on revolution. Any people anywhere being inclined and having the power, have the right to rise up and shake off the existing government, and form a new one that suits them better. This is a most valuable, a most sacred right, a right which, we hope and believe, is to liberate the world. Nor is this right confined to cases in which the whole people of an existing government may choose to exercise it. Any portion of such people that can may revolutionize, and make their own of so much of the territory as they inhabit. More than this, a majority of any portion of such people may revolutionize, putting down a minority, intermingled with or near about them, who may oppose their movements. Such minority was precisely the case of the Tories of our own revolution. It is a quality of revolutions not to go by old lines or old laws, but to break up both, and make new ones. As to the country now in question, we bought it of France in 1803, and sold it to Spain in 1819, according to the President's statement. After this, all Mexico, including Texas, revolutionized against Spain, and, still later, Texas revolutionized against Mexico. In my view, just so far as she carried her revolution, by obtaining the actual, willing or unwilling, submission of the people, so far the country was hers, and no farther. Now, sir, for the purpose of obtaining the very best evidence as to whether Texas had actually carried her revolution to the place where the hostilities of the present war commenced, let the President answer the interrogatories I proposed, as before mentioned, or some other similar ones. Let him answer fully, fairly, and candidly. Let him answer with facts, and not with arguments. Let him remember he sits where Washington sat. 
and, so remembering, let him answer as Washington would answer. As a nation should not, and the Almighty will not, be evaded, so let him attempt no evasion, no equivocation. And, if, so answering, he can show that the soil was ours, where the first blood of the war was shed, that it was not within an uninhabited country, or, within such, that the inhabitants had submitted themselves to the civil authority of Texas, or of the United States, and that the same is true of the site of Fort Brown, then I am with him for his justification. In that case, I shall be happy to reverse the vote I gave the other day. I have a selfish motive for desiring that the President may do this. I expect to give some votes in connection with the war, which, without his so doing, will be of doubtful propriety, in my own judgment, but which will be free from the doubt if he does so. But if he cannot or will not do this, if, on any pretense, or no pretense, he shall refuse or omit it, then I shall be fully convinced of what I more than suspect already, that he is deeply conscious of being in the wrong, that he feels the blood of this war, like the blood of Abel, is crying to heaven against him, that he ordered General Taylor into the midst of a peaceful Mexican settlement, purposely to bring on a war, that, originally having some strong motive, which I will not stop now to give my opinion concerning, to involve the two countries in a war, when trusting to escape scrutiny by fixing the public gaze upon the exceeding brightness of military glory, that attractive rainbow that rises in showers of blood, that serpent's eye that charms to destroy. He plunged into it, and has swept on and on, till, disappointed in his calculation of the ease with which Mexico might be subdued, he now finds himself he knows not where. How like the half-insane mumbling of a fever dream is the whole war part of the late message. At one time telling us that Mexico has nothing whatever that we can get but territory. At another, showing us how we can support the war by levying contributions on Mexico. At one time urging the national honor, the security of the future, the prevention of foreign interference, and even the good of Mexico herself as among the objects of the war. At another, telling us that, to reject indemnity by refusing to accept a cession of territory, would be to abandon all our just demands, and to wage the war, bearing all its expenses, without a purpose or definite object. So then, the national honor, security of the future, and everything but territorial indemnity, may be considered the no purposes, and indefinite objects of the war. But having it now settled that territorial indemnity is the only object we are urged to seize, by legislation here, all that he was content to take a few months ago, and the whole province of Lower California to boot, and to still carry on the war, to take all we are fighting for, and still fight on. Again, the President is resolved, under all circumstances, to have full territorial indemnity for the expenses of the war. But he forgets to tell us how we are to get the excess after those expenses shall have surpassed the value of the whole of the Mexican territory. So again, he insists that the separate national existence of Mexico shall be maintained. But he does not tell us how this can be done after we shall have taken all her territory. 
lest the questions I have suggest be considered speculative merely, let me be indulged a moment in trying to show they are not. The war has gone on some twenty months, for the expenses of which, together with an inconsiderable old score, the President now claims about one half of the Mexican territory, and that by far the better half, so far as concerns our ability to make anything out of it. It is comparatively uninhabited, so that we could establish land offices in it, and raise some money in that way. But the other half is already inhabited, as I understand it, tolerably densely for the nature of the country, and all its lands, are all that are valuable, already appropriated as private property. How, then, are we to make anything out of these lands, with this encumbrance on them, or how remove the encumbrance? I suppose no one will say we shall kill the people, or drive them out, or make slaves of them, or even confiscate their property. How, then, can we make much out of this part of the territory? If the prosecution of the war has, in expenses, already equaled the better half of the country, how long its future prosecution will be in equaling the less valuable half is not a speculative, but a practical question, pressing closely upon us, and yet it is a question which the President seems never to have thought of. As to the mode of terminating the war and securing peace, the President is equally wandering and indefinite. First, it is to be done by a more vigorous prosecution of the war in the vital parts of the enemy's country, and, after apparently talking himself tired on this point, the President drops down into a half-despairing tone, and tells us that, quote, with a people distracted and divided by contending factions, and a government subject to constant changes, by successive revolutions, the continued success of our arms may fail to obtain a satisfactory peace. End quote. Then he suggests the propriety of wheedling the Mexican people to desert the councils of their own leaders, and trusting in our protection, to set up a government from which we can secure a satisfactory peace, telling us that, Quote, this may become the only mode of obtaining such a peace. But soon he falls into doubt of this too, and then drops back onto the already half abandoned ground of more vigorous prosecution. All this shows that the President is in no wise satisfied with his own positions. First, he takes up one, and, in attempting to argue us into it, he argues himself out of it, then seizes another and goes through the same process, and then, confused at being able to think of nothing new, he snatches up the old one again, which he has some time before cast off. His mind, cast beyond its power, is running hither and thither, like some tortured creature on a burning surface, finding no position on which it can settle down and be at ease. Again, it is a singular omission in this message, that it nowhere intimates when the President expects the war to terminate. At its beginning, General Scott was, by this same President, driven into disfavor, if not disgrace, for intimating that peace could not be conquered in less than three or four months. But now at the end of about twenty months, during which time our arms have given us the most splendid successes, every department, in every part, land and water, officers and privates, regulars and volunteers, doing all that men could do, and hundreds of things which had ever before been thought of that men could not do, 
after all this the same president gives us a long message without showing us that as to the end he has himself even an imaginary conception as i have before said he knows not where he is he is a bewildered confounded and miserably perplexed man god grant he may be able to show that there is not something about his conscience more painful than all his mental perplexity this speech he hastened to send home as soon as it was printed for while throughout he trod on unquestionable whig ground he had excellent reasons to fear the result the following is the first letter to mr herndon after the delivery of the speech and notifying him of the fact washington january nineteenth eighteen forty eight dear william enclosed you will find a letter of lewis w candler what is wanted is that you shall ascertain whether the claim upon the note described has received any dividend in the probate court of christian county where the estate of mr overton williams has been administered on if nothing is paid on it withdraw the note and send it to me so that candler can see the endorser of it at all events write me all about it till i can somehow get it off hands i have already been bored more than enough about it not the least of which annoyance is his cursed unreadable and ungodly handwriting i have made a speech a copy of which i will send you by next mail yours as ever a lincoln about the last of january or the first of february he began to hear the first murmurs of alarm and dissatisfaction from his district he was now on the defensive and compelled to write long and tedious letters to pacify some of the whigs of this character are two extremely interesting epistles to mr herndon washington february one eighteen forty eight dear william your letter of the nineteenth was received last night and for which i am much obliged the only thing in it that i wish to talk to you about at once is that because of my vote for ashman's amendment you fear that you and i disagree about the war i regret this not because of any fear we shall remain disagreed after you have read this letter but because if you misunderstand i fear other good friends may also that vote affirms that the war was unnecessarily and unconstitutionally commenced by the president and i will stake my life that if you had been in my place you would have voted just as i did would you have voted what you felt and knew to be a lie i know you would not would you have gone out of the house skulked the vote i expect not if you had skulked one vote you would have had to skulk many more before the end of the session richardson's resolutions introduced before i made any move or gave any vote upon the subject make the direct question of the justice of the war so that no man can be silent if he would you are compelled to speak and your only alternative is to tell the truth or tell a lie i cannot doubt which you would do this vote has nothing to do in determining my votes on the questions of supplies i have always intended and still intend to vote supplies perhaps not in the precise form recommended by the president but in a better form for all purposes except local-focal party purposes it is in this particular you seem mistaken the locos are untiring in their efforts to make the impression that all who vote supplies or take part in the war do of necessity approve the president's conduct in the beginning of it but the whigs have from the beginning made and kept the distinction between the two 
in the very first act nearly all the whigs voted against the preamble declaring that war existed by the act of mexico and yet nearly all of them voted for the supplies as to the whig men who have participated in the war so far as they have spoken to my hearing they do not hesitate to denounce as unjust the president's conduct in the beginning of the war they do not suppose that such denunciation is directed by undying hatred to them as the register would have it believed there are two such whigs on this floor colonel haskell and major james the former fought as a colonel by the side of colonel baker at cerro gordo and stand side by side with me in the vote that you will seem dissatisfied with the latter the history of whose capture with cassius clay you well know had not arrived here when that vote was given but as i understand he stands ready to give just such a vote whenever an occasion shall present baker too who is now here says the truth is undoubtedly that way and whenever he shall speak out he will say so colonel donifin too the favorite whig of missouri and who will run all northern mexico on his return home in a public speech at st louis condemned the administration in relation to the war if i remember g t m davis who has been through almost the whole war declares in favor of mr clay from which i infer that he adopts the sentiments of mr clay generally at least on the other hand i have heard of but one whig who has been to the war attempting to justify the president's conduct that one was captain bishop editor of the charleston courier and a very clever fellow i do not mean this letter for the public but for you before it reaches you you have seen and read my pamphlet speech and perhaps scared anew by it after you get over your scare read it over again sentence by sentence and tell me honestly what you think of it i condensed all i could for fear of being cut off by the hour rule and when i got through i had spoken but forty-five minutes yours forever a lincoln washington february fifteenth eighteen forty eight dear william your letter of the twenty ninth january was received last night being exclusively a constitutional argument i wish to submit some reflections upon it in the same spirit of kindness that i know actuates you let me first state what i understand to be your position it is that if it shall become necessary to repel invasion the president may without violation of the constitution cross the line and invade the territory of another country and that whether such necessity exists in any given case the president is the sole judge before going farther consider well whether this is or is not your position if it is it is a position that neither the president himself nor any friend of his so far as i know has ever taken their only positions are first that the soil was ours where the hostilities commenced and second that whether it was rightfully ours or not congress had annexed it and the president for that reason was bound to defend it both of which are as clearly proved to be false in fact as you can prove that your house is mine that soil was not ours and congress did not annex or attempt to annex it but to return to your position allow the president to invade a neighboring nation whenever he shall deem it necessary to repel an invasion and you will allow him to do 
whatever he may choose to say he deems it necessary for such purpose, and you will allow him to make war at pleasure. Study to see if you can fix any limit to his power in this respect, after having given him so much as you propose. If today he should choose to say he thinks it necessary to invade Canada, to prevent the British from invading us, how could you stop him? You may say to him, quote, I see no probability of the British invading us, end quote. But he will say to you, quote, Be silent. I see it if you don't. End quote. The provision of the Constitution giving the war-making power to Congress was dictated, as I understand it, by the following reasons. Kings had always been involving and impoverishing their people in wars, pretending generally, if not always, that the good of the people was the object. This our convention understood to be the most oppressive of all kingly oppressions, and they resolved to so frame the Constitution that no man should hold the power of bringing this oppression upon us. But your view destroys the whole matter, and places our President where kings have always stood. Write soon again. Yours truly, A. Lincoln. But the Whig National Convention to nominate a candidate for the presidency was to meet at Philadelphia on the 1st of June, and Mr. Lincoln was to be a member. He was not a clay man. He wanted a candidate that could be elected, and he was for old rough as the only available material at hand. But let him explain himself. Washington, April 30, 1848 Dear Williams, I have not seen in the papers any evidence of a movement to send a delegate from your circuit to the June Convention. I wish to say that I think it all important that a delegate should be sent. Mr. Clay's chance for an election is just no chance at all. He might get New York, and, and that would have elected in 1844, but it will not now, because he must now, at the least, lose Tennessee, which he had then, and in addition the fifteen new votes of Florida, Texas, Iowa, and Wisconsin. I know our good friend Browning is a great admirer of Mr. Clay, and I therefore fear he is favoring his nomination. If he is, ask him to discard feeling, and try if he can possibly, as a matter of judgment, count the votes necessary to elect him. In my judgment, we can elect nobody but General Taylor, and we cannot elect him without a nomination. Therefore, don't fail to send a delegate. Your friend as ever, A. Lincoln. To Archibald Williams, Esquire. Washington, June 12, 1848. Dear Williams, On my return from Philadelphia, where I had been attending the nomination of Old Ruff, I found your letter and a mass of others, which had accumulated in my absence. By many and often, it had been said they would not abide the nomination of Taylor, but, since the deed has been done, they are fast falling in, and in my opinion we shall have a most overwhelming, glorious triumph. One unmistakable sign is that all the odds and ends are with us. Barnburners, Native Americans, Tyler men, disappointed, office-seeking locofocos, and the Lord knows what. This is important, if in nothing else, and showing which way the wind blows. Some of the sanguine men here set down all the states as certain for Taylor but Illinois, and it is doubtful. Cannot something be done even in Illinois? Taylor's nomination takes the locals on the blind side. It turns the war thunder against them. 
the war is now to them the gallows of Haman, which they built for us, on which they are doomed to be hanged themselves. Excuse this short letter. I have so many to write that I cannot devote much time to any one. Yours as ever, A. Lincoln. But his young partner in the law gave him a great deal of annoyance. Mr. Herndon seems to have been troubled by patriotic scruples. He could not understand how the war had been begun unconstitutionally and unnecessarily by President Polk, nor how the Whigs could have voted supplies to carry on the war without endorsing the war itself. Besides all this, he sent news of startling defections, and the weary representative took up his pen again and again to explain, defend, and advise. Washington, June 22, 1848 Dear William, Last night I was attending a sort of caucus of the Whig members, held in relation to the coming presidential election. The whole field of the nation was scanned, and all is high hope and confidence. Illinois is expected to better her condition in this race. Under these circumstances, judge how heartrending it was to come to my room and find and read your discouraging letter of the 15th. We have made no gains, but have lost, quote, H. R. Robinson, Turner, Campbell, and four or five more, end quote. Tell Arney to reconsider, if you would be saved. Baker and I used to do something, but I think you attach more importance to our absence than is just. There is another cause. In 1840, for instance, we had two senators and five representatives in Sagamon. Now we have part of one senator and two representatives, with quite one-third more people than we had then. We have only half the sort of offices which are sought by men of the speaking sort of talent. This, I think, is the chief cause. Now, as to the young men, you must not wait to be brought forward by the older men. For instance, do you suppose that I should ever have got into notice if I had waited to be hunted up and pushed forward by older men? You young men get together and form a rough and ready club, and have regular meetings and speeches. Take in everybody that you can get. Harrison, Grimsley, Z.A. Enos, Lee Kimball, and C.W. Matheny will do to begin the thing. But as you go along, gather up all the shrewd, wild boys about town, whether just of age or a little under age, Chris, Logan, Reddick Ridgely, Lewis Swizzler, and hundreds such. Let every one play the part he can play best. Some speak, some sing, and all hollow. Holler, E.D. Your meetings will be of evenings. The older men and the women will go to you, so that it will not only contribute to the election of old Zack, but will be an interesting pastime in improving to the intellectual faculties of all engaged. Don't fail to do this. You asked me to send you all the speeches made about old Zack, the war, etc., etc. Now, this makes me a little impatient. I have regularly sent you the Congressional Globe and Appendix, and you cannot have examined them, or you would have discovered that they contain every speech made by every man in both houses of Congress, on every subject during the session. Can I send any more? Can I send speeches that nobody has made? Thinking it would be most natural that the newspapers would feel interested to give at least some of the speeches to their readers, I, at the beginning of the session, made arrangements to have one copy of the Globe and Appendix regularly sent to each week paper of the district. And yet, with the exception of my own little speech, 
which was published in two only of then five now four whig papers i do not remember having seen a single speech or even extract from one in any single one of those papers with equal and full means on both sides i will venture that the state register has thrown before its readers more of loco foco speeches in a month than all the whig papers of the district have done of whig speeches during the session if you wish a full understanding of the war i repeat what i believe i have said to you in a letter once before that the whole or nearly so is to be found in the speech of dixon of connecticut this i sent you in pamphlet as well as in the globe examine and study every sentence of that speech thoroughly and you will understand the whole subject you ask how congress came to declare that war had existed by the act of mexico is it possible you don't understand that yet you have at least twenty speeches in your possession that fully explain it i will however try it once more the news reached washington of the commencement of hostilities on the rio grande and of the great peril of general taylor's army everybody whigs and democrats was for sending them aid in men and money it was necessary to pass a bill for this the locos had a majority in both houses and they brought in a bill with a preamble saying whereas war exists by the act of mexico therefore we send general taylor money the whigs moved to strike out the preamble so they could vote to send the men and money without saying anything about how the war commenced but being in the minority they were voted down and the preamble was retained then on the passage of the bill the question came upon them quote, shall we vote for preamble and bill together or against both together End quote. they did not want to vote against sending help to general taylor and therefore they voted for both together is there any difficulty in understanding this even my little speech shows how this was and if you will go to the library you may get the journal of eighteen forty five forty six in which you can find the whole for yourself we have nothing published yet with special reference to the taylor race but we soon will have and then i will send them to everybody i made an internal improvement speech the day before yesterday which i shall send home as soon as i can get it written out and printed and which i suppose nobody will read your friend as ever a lincoln washington july tenth eighteen forty eight dear william your letter covering the newspaper slip was received last night the subject of that letter is exceedingly painful to me and i cannot but think there is some mistake in your impression of the motives of the old men i suppose i am now one of the old men and i declare on my veracity which i think is good with you that nothing could afford me more satisfaction than to learn that you and others of my young friends at home were doing battle in the contest and endearing themselves to the people and taking a stand far above any i have ever been able to reach in their admiration i cannot conceive that other old men feel differently of course i cannot demonstrate what i say but i was young once and i am sure i was never ungenerously thrust back i hardly know what to say the way for a young man to rise is to improve himself every way he can never suspecting that anybody wishes to hinder him allow me to assure you that suspicion and jealousy never did help any man in any situation there may sometimes be ungenerous attempts to keep a young man down and they will succeed too if he allows his mind to be diverted from its true channel 
to brood over the attempted injury cast about and see if this feeling has not injured every person you have ever known to fall into it now in what i have said i am sure you will suspect nothing but sincere friendship i would save you from a fatal error you have been a laborious studious young man you are far better informed on almost all subjects than i have ever been you cannot fail in any laudable object unless you allow your mind to be improperly directed i have some the advantage of you in the world's experience merely by being older and it is this that induces me to advise you still seem to be a little mistaken about the congressional globe and appendix they contain all of the speeches that are published in any way my speech and dayton's speech which you say you got in pamphlet form are both word for word in the appendix i repeat again all are there your friend as ever a lincoln the internal improvement speech to which mr lincoln alludes in one of these letters was delivered on the twentieth of june and contained nothing remarkable or especially characteristic it was in the main merely the usual whig argument in favor of the constitutionality of mr clay's american system but after the nominations at baltimore and philadelphia everybody in either house of congress who could compose anything at all on his legs or in the closet felt it incumbent upon him to contribute at least one electioneering speech to the political literature of the day at last on the twenty seventh of july mr lincoln found an opportunity to make his few like it have ever been heard in either of these venerable chambers it is a common remark of those who know nothing of the subject that mr lincoln was devoid of imagination but the reader of this speech will entertain a different opinion it opens to us a mind fertile in images sufficiently rare and striking but of somewhat questionable taste it must have been heard in amazement by those gentlemen of the house who had never known a hanks or seen a new salem end of section eighteen recording by greg giordano newport ritchie florida